0: Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in regional anesthesia and pain medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, editor in chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well done pain medicine improves health and well being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us, let's get started. We have all been there, the boring lecture. Your mind is thinking about anything but the topic. Even worse, you leave without new knowledge. A total waste of time, and we all know time is so precious. The good news is that there is a best practice behind how to communicate effectively. Human factors in neuroscience play important roles. When giving an oral presentation with slides, which is the contemporary approach, there are actual strategies to optimize the impact and achieve your learning objectives. Today, we're joined by Dr. Monica Harbell. Dr. Monica Harbell is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. She graduated from anesthesiology residency and regional anesthesiology fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. She is the Associate Program Director for the Mayo Clinic Arizona Anesthesiology Residency. She is the Chair of the ASA Committee on Patient Safety and Education and a member of the ASA Committee on Practice Parameters. She is a recipient of the 2021 Mayo Clinic Outstanding Emerging Educator Award. Monica, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show today, Brian.
0: It's our pleasure, Recently, Monica was the senior author for a very interesting RAPM education piece on how to optimize a medical lecture. RAPM was very excited to support Monica, especially in our new section on education. So many of us who are in academic medical centers are responsible for teaching. However, most of us have no formal training in educational best practices. Thus, Dr. Harbell's work is refreshing, needed, and important. So to start things off, Monica, can you tell us a little bit about the background story of why you decided to take on this topic?
1: Yeah, Brian. So um, to be honest, um, I think I really just got really frustrated of going to conferences, going to these meetings, and having to sit through one boring lecture after another. Um, The research was really good. The science was really good, but it would often be really hard to understand what the presenter was really trying to say or really hear what that presenter's message was. I think we get so much great training um, about how to be great clinicians and how to be great anesthesiologists, but you're right, we really don't learn how to be a great educator or or even how to give a great presentation. So that really inspired me um, to uh, take what I've learned um, and share it uh, with the rest uh, of you all
0: now monica i you have a kind of a cool background uh within your residency in terms of uh connections that you made and some some experiences that 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 you had that that helped you a little bit in your your educational role um and do you mind sharing that with 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 the audience
1: yeah yeah, so i mean i think in in my residency actually i didn't get a lot of of instruction um, on how to be a great educator, but as a junior faculty, I really did. So, you know, my co-author on this paper is Dr. Patricia O'Sullivan. She is an amazing um, person. She's a do- she has a doctorate in education. She's a faculty development expert at UCSF, um, and I actually met her as a junior faculty um, when I was selected to be part of the Teaching Scholars program. Um, so that's a really competitive um, intensive uh, faculty development program. It focused on so many different things, but um, especially focused on curriculum development and evaluation, how to be a great teacher, how to do educational research, Um, and kind of through, and it also just introduced you to all these other people in the institution that cared about education. Um, and so that was a really great opportunity for me. Um, and it, it's how I connected with um, Dr. O'Sullivan. And she's been a great mentor to me over the past couple of years.
0: And, and I think, I don't know if it was, no, actually, she's the one that introduced me to you. But I, f- I had an introduction to Dr. O'Sullivan through an Azure event where she helped uh, on actually multiple occasions to support some of our faculty development programs. And I I agree with you. She is absolutely spectacular. I think it highlights the importance of of networking and and building relationships in our community around around these 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 topics. And and so I was wondering if if you could maybe give from your background some practical tips to the eager you know, junior anesthesiologist who wants to get more skills in the area of teaching and faculty development. Now, obviously, the first step is to read your paper. That's that's that goes without saying. Um, but everybody talks about faculty development, but often it's very hard to know where some of these resources are. And, and you were very fortunate to have this this connection with Dr. O'Sullivan. Um, and but we may not all have that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, yes, please, 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 shameless plug uh, for you to read the paper. Um, but yeah, I think what a really good place to start um, for people that are interested in in learning is is a, a book actually by Peter Brown and some other co-authors called Make It Stick. Um I think it it's it's a quick read. It's a great audiobook, actually. Um I don't get any royalties from these people, but
0: um <laughs> I
1: think it's a great way of thinking about. How do we, how do we, how do we teach and how do we learn um, most effectively? So I think that's a good place to start if you're interested in in learning more about this. Um, I think, you know, I was pretty lucky to have this intensive program um, at UCSF, but. Also, um, what was cool about UCSF is they had a lot of other different workshops um, that were available to all faculty, and many institutions have that. So that's definitely a place to look. Look for your, your school of medicine um, affiliated with your hospital. Look for your academy of Medi- medical educators. Um, they often have lots of teaching workshops and other educational workshops for people. Um, another really great resource that we have in Anesthesia is uh, the Society for Education in Anesthesia. Asia has, um, you know, dedicated teaching workshops and conferences as well. And so that'd be another great resource.
0: And I'm just going to put a little plug in for ASRA and RAPM. There's also uh, programs that, uh, that exist in both in both of those organizations. Uh, we have a mentoring program uh, for guest editor, uh, reviewers uh, in, in Rapham and, and you kind of have to be a little creative and look for all these resources. But I can't underscore from my, my, my experience, Uh, uh, enough the importance of having a really personal mentor that's a content expert in the area you want to develop in. And I think, you know, you got to do everything you can to go out and search for those people and find them. Uh, and it it just it'll have a lasting lasting impact.
1: Yeah, I definitely didn't mean to exclude Azra, and um, ASRA has a lot of great resources. I've been really lucky to um, be part of that mentoring program through ASRA as well. And um, there's an education SIG with really great minds and um, and leaders in regional anesthesia education. That's also a great resource as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Monica. Did you you went to did you go to Boston for the Harvard Macy program?
1: I've been very blessed to um, to be involved in ASRA, and I was one of the um, inaugural group of Harvey Macy Scholars um, that ASRA supported. And um, you know, myself and Melanie Donnelly, we attended uh, the Um, innovations in healthcare Harvey Macy course. And I can't believe I forgot to mention this, but it's another great uh, way to, um, they have great courses through Harvard Macy um, that are open to any medical um, personnel. Um, And uh, I highly recommend uh, the Harvard Macy courses as well. All
0: right, cool. Um, so let's get start getting into your your uh, paper a little bit. Um, do you, can you s- start by maybe summarizing some of the major downsides to a traditional audience general lecture? And you know, you make the you make the point in the paper um, or the reference. Uh, you know, death by PowerPoint, which I I can't stop laughing every time I read that. So because it's like so true. I mean, talk about a succinct way of like summarizing the problem. But I don't I I would just like to get your thoughts on on kind of that maybe the negatives of the traditional approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish I had coined the term death by PowerPoint. And um, I think it's crazy. It's been that term has been around for like many years, practically decades, right? So I, I think that speaks volumes to what the issue is. Um, but part of part of the problem um, with death by uh, PowerPoint is that it's when a presenter tries to cover like 60 slides in 10 minutes, right? Like they try to cram so many slides in a really short timeframe that they're kind of zipping through every slide and you barely get to like register what's happening on that slide before they've already moved on to the next. Um, The other part of death by PowerPoint is, you know, when people cram so much text on that, on that slide, you know, it's like font eight (laughs) point size Um, and you can like, you can't see it in the front row, nevertheless, like in the back row. Um, And so, I mean, to me, that's kind of, it's almost being disrespectful to your audience, right? Like you're not intending them to actually see it. You know, my, my favorite is when, the presenter actually says like I don't expect you to be able to read this but blah and it's like well then why did you show it to us like you know I um I, sorry obviously I'm super passionate about this um I think this is like a huge issue especially now that we have so many virtual meetings and um, so many pre-recorded things. It's like you know, why why come to a, a meeting in person anymore, right? You got to make it worth worth the audience members' while. Um, you know why you got to make it worth it um, compared to you know letting them just watch it at home at, at like two times speed, which I probably have done before. Sorry to admit. <laughs> um, but...
0: I'm totally sympathetic to all those those points, uh, and and I agree a hundred percent. And and I, you know, I and I and I think that um, the decision to go to a live lecture, it, you you need to right, you need to offer something that is 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 unique, uh, and and else else we won't really have a future in these in these live live um, meetings, which I think are important for a whole other other set of, of reasons, like you know networking and professional development and, and etc. But now, one of the things that has always struck me about um, education and learning um, science, if you will, is that there's this really complex lexicon around it, um, and, and it's specifically around creating and defining learning objectives, and uh, you know the, the 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 rules that you have to follow can be arduous, and it can actually like turn off educators in the process. Um, and, and, but, but, but they're really important, like learning objectives and following structure. So I was wondering if you could give some words of wisdom about the importance of learning objectives in a way that's not where people immediately won't shut down. Cause you go, you, you mentioned, uh, was it.
1: Bloom's taxonomy. Yes. Yes. That's favorite? it. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately learning objectives definitely get a bad rap. Um, but okay. I'm hoping that, you know. You can uh, read the article, and you can see, and I can, I'm, and now I'm going to make the argument of why they're actually important. Um, I think uh, one of the things people don't consider is that if you can make a really strong, a really smart, um, specific, relevant learning objective before you start your presentation, it actually can save you time. And, we all are in need of more time, right? So when you have a really strong learning objective, um, it really helps focus your presentation. So you're not going to waste your time making a slide on something that's not relevant to this learning objective or to this presentation. And so it saves you a lot of time there. It also can be in- extremely helpful when you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going to make the cut into the final presentation. If you can't have, sometimes you really just can't have it all, unfortunately, e- even though people try. <laughs> um, and and by, by having a really good learning objective beforehand, you can go back to it and, you know, peel away the slides that really don't pertain to, to that learning objective. What does What is it that you want your learner to take home at the end of your presentation?
0: It forces you to kind of start planning that story that you refer to. Uh, early on and, and you get a sense of how it's going to be, how it's going to write itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's going to help give your presentation some structure as well. Um, the other piece that it's really good for is like, you know, it depends on what your audience is and and the need for your presentation, but it also helps you figure out how to assess um, if your presentation was successful. Right. Um, and it helps you figure out how you would evaluate how um, your your learner after having your presentation.
0: All right, now you, you mentioned that one should be careful with media. And I think I know exactly what you mean. I have seen presentations that are exploding with video, images and color and sound. Although artistically impressive, these can be really distracting from the core aspects of the content. Do you wanna elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So we know um, from educational science that people learn better when they can both see and hear a message, Um, but they also learn better when all the extraneous stuff, the extraneous words, pictures, sounds are excluded. So you want to make sure that you're only including visuals that are going to enhance your message. Um, so I think, you know, videos, they're great. They're great to have in a presentation, um, when they're appropriate and pertain to what you the message that you're trying to convey and when they work, right? So there, there's a little bit of a risk in every time you include a, a video in a presentation. Um, so it's super important to make sure that you have like a backup, that you practice it in the actual venue, um, to make sure that it's going to work, um, come game time at the real presentation. At the same time other things like animation sounds with your slide transitions, they just end up being distracting. And so you should just take those out.
0: I, I agree hundred percent. And then, and I, and I believe these have some principles in, in, uh, in, 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 in human factors, right. And in, in attention spans, it's not just that this is someone's opinion. There's actual, there's actual evaluation of some of these, these principles, right? Oh, for sure. Now, uh, you argue that, uh, Complexity is not necessarily better than simplicity. You're, you're kind of already alluding to that, but I, I love how you caution uh, the, the 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 creator not to use the presentation as a teleprompter. I think this is a huge point in in my opinion. Anybody who's kind of reading off of their slides, the audience really loses. I think a sense of confidence that you actually know what you're doing, um, and it may be harder to you know like adopt some of the the messages of the lecture. Uh, and, um, and actually, I saw uh, the complete opposite of this once and, at an Azure meeting, uh, and I'm forgetting who the presenter was, but they actually had a timed lecture that the slides kind of went through what they needed to do automatically, and the, and the text was like so perfect, and it was timed. It was like the antithesis of like reading off of something. It was more like, it was like a show, Uh, and act. And I thought that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really easy to fall into that trap of making your slides like your notes or or a script of exactly what you're trying to say. Um, But I think the key point is to remember that the slides aren't actually the presentation. You are the presentation. Um, And you're going to be much more effective as a presenter if uh, you take most of the text off the slides um, and actually put them in your notes. Um, and obviously there's gotta be a bit of a balance, right? The other ex- extreme of just having a slide with only a picture, like while that's really kind of pretty to look at during a presentation, it actually makes it really hard for the learner to recall um, what what they learned at a later date. So there's gotta be a little bit of a balance and the article really um, has some, some really concrete practical tips for how to make your slides more readable and more memorable.
0: And, and you also get into details. And I remember uh, uh, Patricia O'Sullivan really, really being hardcore about this uh, specifics about the font color uh, bullets. And, and so, so I'd love to get your, your comments on, on, on the importance of getting that right in terms of getting the, getting the lecture to be impactful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, It's, you know, I think it just tells you how many presentations there are in the world that there's actually research on like what font size you should use, (laughs) um, depending on how big your audience is. Um, You know, other things like kind of my big take home, you know, obviously you want to have contrast and you want to be smart about the use of color, right? You want a high contrast between your background and your font. You want to use color, but you don't want to use so much color that it loses its meaning, right? So you only want to use color to like highlight a really important message on your slide. And you want to be careful not to use more than um, a couple of colors on each slide. And the other um, kind of really simple quick and dirty rule is to do the six by six check, right? So it means like you shouldn't have more than six words per line or six lines per slide. Um, And if your slide doesn't cover that, then you're probably using your slide as your notes, right? And so that's a time when you want to look at that slide critically and start moving some of that content off.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. I, and I, you know, and I, I, I realize I violate that sometimes and, and, and having those simple rules will be huge when I'm preparing, preparing lectures. And this is for everybody. It doesn't really, I, I don't think it has to be like a national lecture. It can be something you're presenting, I assume, as a pitch to your department. It doesn't really matter. It's probably a universal theme.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I love how you, recommend using pause techniques to to let the audience consume material. Now I have seen that be a little bit awkward where it was like almost too much time. Is there like a sweet spot?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it I think sometimes pause I think people get afraid of using pause techniques, right? Because they're afraid of it being awkward, right? And I think it can really seem awkward as a presenter because we're so stuck in this mindset that as a presenter, we need to be talking the entire time. Um I think it's um I think sometimes it can feel a little awkward for the audience, especially if they've never experienced it before. But you'd be surprised um, how quickly uh, they people can pick up on on what they're expected to do, as long as you're really clear with them with what you need them to do in the time. And it can also be super energizing for the audience. Personally, like you know, my personal favorite pause technique is like the think pair share. So in a think pair share, you ask the audience um, to think about some type of question. Um, what think about what they would do. So an example would be like, let's say you are talking about a new block and you'd be like, okay, in your practice, where would you incorporate this new block in your practice? Um, you have them think about it for like one or two minutes. And then you have them share, meaning you ask them to share with their partner next to them, the person sitting next to them, what they think about it. And then you could potentially have them um, uh, share with the entire group. So that's the share part at the end. Um, and I think what's great about that is I think um, it gets people talking, right? It gets people feeling more comfortable in the audience. It gets it gets you meeting other people at the conference and interacting with them and hearing about their practice um, and how it differs from yours. And then all of a sudden, when you get to your Q&A section at the end of the presentation, you have Way more participation because you've already got there, you know, got everybody talking and, and getting people more comfortable in the audience.
0: That's a that's a great point, Monica. And I, you know, I remember uh, it was kind of like a pause technique. It might be a little bit different, but one of one of my mentors when I went to graduate school uh, in, in epidemiology and biostatistics, um, he stopped uh, kind of like what you're saying, but what he said was. This is a this is like a big moment. You almost described it as that in the lecture. This is a big moment. This is a time to put down your your uh, your your pencils. Don't worry about the exam. <laughs> um, like the, the, what I'm about to tell you is 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 game changing uh, in public health. You uh, know he was talking actually about the the hormonal uh, replacement. Um, uh, disaster, uh, of the eighties, uh, where postmenopausal women were, were all placed or being recommended to be gone, a hormonal replacement therapy to prevent disease, but it was actually causing the disease it was supposed to prevent. And we didn't figure that out until a lot later. So we, it was this huge, huge you know, example of a public health failure. And he wanted to really highlight that. And he actually got you all kind of jazzed up for that. I guess it's kind of like an, an augmented pause.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's, you know, that's a very effective strategy. During a, a lecture, to like um, have people consolidate their learning, or to to take a, to have them reflect on what they've just learned, right?
0: right. He's right.
1: he's signaling to you that this is actually incredibly important and life changing. Right. Right. Yeah. And who's, who's not going to remember that moment. You right. remember this, like how many years later? Right? I
0: know, I know. It's like one of the, it was one of those like signature moments. I mean, it was so powerful and it was like, it was like, cause we're all, you're all students are caught up in the, I got to get through this for the exam. I gotta, I gotta make sure I have the right stuff. I get the test, the questions right. And they're missing often the big picture. Now it may be a little bit different at a resident level, you know, but there may, people may be thinking about the case they're going to have to start. In 20 minutes and they're distracted so you could actually bring them into that with these these kind of prompts so that's that's pretty cool um now uh, time management is a is a big issue you already alluded to this where we're you know trying to jam in you know 60 slides in six minutes but can you tell us a little bit more about a the human attention span and then in in b the major challenge of having a lecture go too long i mean i don't know you i don't think you specifically address that in your paper but i think it kind of ties into like what What does learning theory tell us about the attention span of adults?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is a little controversial, but, you know, there is data to suggest that, you know, as adults, we have a limited time of attention of around 10 to 15 minutes. So I think what that really means is when you're given a lecture, you need to think about changing things up every 10 to 15 minutes, maybe every 10 to 15 minutes you incorporate one of these pause techniques and, you know, I I in the paper I talk about a couple of the pause techniques but there really are many, they're like, you know, there's a whole book. Um, uh, on pause techniques by Ann Rice, that's referenced in the paper. That's amazing. Um, but, you know, not all of them are great for every type of lecture setting, um, but it gives you lots of different options to, uh, to change things up. Um, and then, what was the the second part of your question? I think I. Well,
0: just in terms of like, uh, you know, these lectures that go uh, very long, oh. like these, the traditional six, you know, the grand rounds was 60 minutes, and there was often a pressure. I got to, residents fill I got to fill this. So they put, you know, a lot of material in and, but is that really what you want to be doing? And because I usually recommend pretty much, you know, try to cut it off at a 30 minutes allowed discussion and uh, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think I was thinking of of something else you said. There really is, you know, the people that have, let's say you have a 30 minute time slot and uh, the lecture ends up going 45 minutes plus. That's actually a huge dissatisfier for people, right? They, you know, they like to know, um, you know, if they think it's going to be a certain length, then it should be that certain length or shorter. No one ever complains about shorter um and I think your point is really a good one about making sure to leave time for discussion right for for question and answer and finding and that's what the point of the pause techniques too finding ways to engage with the audience in a an authentic way that helps them um interact with the material in a different way that's gonna make it stick longer
0: right. I, I think that's those are that's that's spot on. Now, I, I kind of kind of coming down to the end here, um, and I I saw in your paper that you recommended practice, and practice isn't just about proofreading and looking at your slides. It's about mimicking the environment you'll be in. It means practicing body language and hand gestures. And I remember uh, this is this is a long time ago because I'm like old now, but I I remember getting ready for the oral bo- oral boards, and I would I would have my at the time, my fiance asked me a question and I would like, like speak out to her. Like she was the oral board examiner and, uh, and really practice how it came out, which was much different than like when I read about it. And, um, so do you have any, um, recommendation to the, for the listeners about how to go about doing this for your, your, your presentation?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously practice is very important and you want to practice your presentation out loud in front of a live audience um, I think it's really helpful to do it in front of colleagues because at because le- they're able to give you really meaningful feedback about the content. Um, you can definitely do it in front of loved ones, um, but they're not going to be um, all up to speed on the content ex- uh, depending on what their field is. Um, and I think you want to be so comfortable presenting your presentation that you know what's on every slide and you know what's going to come up on the next slide so that you can really anticipate it and really smooth transitions from slide to slide. Um, and you don't want to forget about your body language and your voice. And I think that's really, um, easy to forget sometimes now that we've had like so many years of zoom presentations only where like, how, you know, all you get is like the headshot and, um, very little of that. And that's something as we transition back to in-person conferences, um, that it's something that's going to be even more important. Um, but you want to think about, um, how do you use the space where you're presenting? Um, And you wanna scope out the place ahead of time, see what it looks like, um, walk around, think about how you're gonna use that space. Are you gonna walk around? You You wanna find that balance where you're able to use the space to your advantage, but not appear like you're fidgeting. I would say like highly recommend trying to practice your presentation by giving, let's say um, you're giving a presentation at a national meeting. Well, try to give it as a grand rounds at your home institution first. Um, Not only does it force you to have your slides done well in advance, but it also gives you a great opportunity to practice it and to get feedback. Um, Think about, if you can't do that, think about videotaping yourself. It's incredibly painful to watch yourself or listen to yourself. However, it's also really helpful. So you can see, okay, everybody has some type of verbal filler or tick, and everybody has some type of gesture that Maybe they're overdoing, right? And is and it's getting overemphasized, and it's hard to see that until um, you kind of watch yourself or listen to yourself.
0: Yeah, my my kids watched me uh, give a, a lecture once because uh, it was recorded, and they had all sorts of comments about how bad it was. So I know exactly how you can get feedback, D- oh, Dad. No. Dad, <laughs> dad you, you say you say you say um all the time, um um um. So anyway. I won't say, um, for the rest of those, I promise. So basically, <laughs> actually that's kind of a wrap. Uh, I will put a plug in for the infographic that you built with, with, um, uh, Dr. Gupta and Dr. Schwenk, who are social media, media editors. It's phenomenal. In fact, I sent it around to our department as soon as it was, um, made for a resource for the residents as a rapid, uh, 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 you know tool so thank you so much for doing that so I hope the listeners will check out um, the infographic that's in the same edition as Monica's paper and thanks so much for joining us Monica and I want to thank every one of you who listened in thank you for listening to the Wrap Focus podcast original music and production are done by Dan Langa. more information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rappam Journal, and you can visit us at www.rappam.org.